We are in week three of Joyride, our Joyride through Philippians. And um, i got to tell you, one of the myths in life, if you've got your outline, go ahead and open it up. Um, all the scriptures that we're going to use. By the way, let me just welcome those of you who are watching online or out in the pavilion. Uh, thanks for tuning in uh, today. Um, we got some, this is a, another one of these great messages that's just so practical. It's why Philippians is my, one of my favorite books of all time. Um, I, I feel like I should teach through Philippians every year. You know, it's just, it's just so practical. Um, because many people buy into this, this myth that most most people think that happiness or joyfulness is simply a matter of luck. They think, hey, if you're joyful, if you're happy, you are so lucky. You know, the circumstances of life, you have happy circumstances, therefore, you know, so congratulations to you. You lucked out in life. But actually, joyfulness and happiness, they don't have very much to do with luck. In fact, we can learn to be joyful. We can learn. These are qualities or character traits. Actually, joy is a fruit of the Spirit of God in our life. There are certain qualities that if we can learn, we can increase the happiness and increase the joy in our life. In fact, if we don't learn these, these qualities, it will increase the unhappiness in our life. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through Philippians. As we go through, we're going to look at basically four qualities that not only do we need to learn ourselves, but then we need to pass on to our, the next generation. I'll talk about how we need to teach this to our kids as well. These are four qualities that if you want to have happiness in your life, if you want to have joy in your life, if you want to increase the joyfulness that you experience for the rest of your life, you've, we've got to intentionally build these these four qualities into our life. So I've got your, your outline there, if you will follow along. Let me, I'm going to, we're in Philippians chapter 2, and we're in the this last third of the second of chapter 2. I'm going to read you verses 19 to 30 in just a minute. <clears throat> but let me kind of remind you of the background, especially those of you who may be just tuning in for the first time. <clears throat> you can go back and grab sessions 1 through 4, watch those episodes. Um, binge watch those this week if you want. And uh, kind of catch up because it's all very practical stuff. I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul, where is he when he writes this? He's in prison in Rome. He's already spent at least two years in prison. He's now in Rome. He's going to spend the last two years of his life in Rome. And he's writing to a church in Greece in the town of Philippi. That's why we call it Philippians, the uh, Philippian letter. And Paul writes these church members at his church. He was the founding pastor he was the church planter in the church of Philippi, and he writes them because they've been sending him some care packages. Um, they actually sent him an, an offering while he was awaiting an appeal of his execution before Caesar. The Caesar in Rome at this time is Nero, one of the worst Caesars, one of the most ruthless Caesars. And Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he's appealing his, his sentence of execution and he's hopeful that he's going to go back and be reunited with them at some point, which he talks about in his letter. Um, actually, this, this, this whole letter, this whole book, it's a thank you letter. He's thanking the church for sending help to take care of me, especially this financial gift that they've just given him. And in the middle of the letter, he kind of gets all 
we get all this personal information, and at first glance, it's easy to just kind of, yeah, 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 and read your way through that. But there's so much that we can glean, even from this personal aside that we're going to see in chapter 2. I'm going to start reading you verse 19 all the way through 30. Paul writes, and he says, If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you're getting along. I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. All the others care only for themselves and not for what matters to Jesus Christ. But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what's going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. In other words, I'm hoping to get out of jail and come to see you back in Philippi. But then he says in verse 25, Meanwhile, I thought I should send, whoa, look at that name, Epaphroditus. He would go by, we would probably call him Epap today. Anyway, I, meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus Epap back to you. He is a true brother, a co-worker, a fellow soldier, and he was your messenger to help me in my need. And I'm sending him. You see, when the Philippians sent the financial gift to Paul to help while he was in prison in Rome, they sent it with this guy, Epaphroditus, Epap, and he's saying, I'm going to send him back to you because he has been longing to see you, because that's his home church, and he, is, and he was very distressed that you heard that he was ill. And certainly he was ill. In fact, he almost died. And trying to get to Rome to help Paul, Epaphroditus, he, he almost dies. But God had mercy on him and also on me so that I would not have one sorrow after another. So I'm all the more anxious to send him back to you, for I know you will be glad to see him. And then I will not be so worried about you. Welcome him with Christian love and with great joy. And give him the honor that people like him deserve. For he risked his life for the work of Christ. And he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So this is about how do I learn to be joyful, more joyful in life? What are the four things, the four habits, the four characteristics, the four qualities that I can, that I can focus in on to, to make my life more happy or more joyful? And what this passage teaches us is these are the four things that we need to have in our life in order for our joy, our joyfulness to go up and for it to go up in the, in the lives of the people around us. And the first thing that I want you to fill in is, number one, if I'm going to learn to be more joyful, I have to shift the focus, fill in focus, I have to shift the focus away from myself. This is the starting point for all joy, for all happiness. I've got to shift the focus away from from myself, I have to care more than just about me. I've got to care for the needs of those who are around me. If all I think about is me, 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 myself, and I, 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 then I'm going to be a miserable person, and we all know people like this. If I truly want to be happy in my life, if I really want joy in my life, I've got to move the focus off of me. On to God and on to other people. And then Paul gives us Timothy as a great example of this. He says in verse 20 and 21, I have no one else like Timothy who genuinely cares about your welfare. 
All the others care only for themselves. Would you say that's true about most people? That most people, all the others, care only about themselves? Everyone, it seems, looks out for their own interests first, don't they? Not many people are looking after your interests. In fact, you can probably name on one hand the number of people who really put you first. They look out for your interests in life over their own. There aren't very many people like that. I naturally turn to look, look at my interests. You probably do the same. I don't tend, by nature especially, to look at your... I don't wake up in the morning thinking, I wonder if they're going to have a good day today. I wake up in the morning and wonder if I'm going to have a good day today. I wake up in the morning and like, what's on my calendar? What do I have to deal with today? I don't wonder if you're having a hard time. I'm just worried about if I'm going to have a hard time. Because, I don't know about you, but I, by nature, I'm always thinking about me. And you tend to think about you. Paul says... I've got nobody like this guy, Timothy. He has a genuine interest, not just in himself, but he's looking out for everybody else. And everybody else I know, they're just looking after their own interests. And when he says no one is like Timothy, I think what he's really trying to communicate to us is that unselfish people are very, very rare. When you find someone in your life who is unselfish, that is very, very rare. And that we should honor those people. Paul says he takes, Timothy takes a, a genuine interest in others, while everybody else is only looking out for themselves. What we're talking about here is a matter of focus. The first key to happiness and joyfulness is that I've got to change my focus. I get them off of me. And on to God and on to other people. And that's something that we have to learn to do. We don't naturally have this characteristic. In fact, I've said before, we usually when we walk, in, when I walk into a room, when we walk into a room, we're not usually thinking, you know, who in this room needs my help? Well, you know, what are these people going through? And they're like, how could I help them? Most of the time when we walk in the room, we're thinking, how do I look? Am I put together? What are they thinking about me? We're just egocentric that way. We, f- we feel like, especially as Americans, that the world revolves around me. So you have to intentionally train yourself. That's why we're talking about learning. You have to train yourself to do the opposite. It's a shift, a shift in focus away from myself. Earlier in this same chapter, verse 4, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. If we did that, don't you think our, our life would be happier? We'd be happier in life? Of course we would. Now, this isn't easy to do because everything in our culture, especially everything in the American culture, teaches us to become more and more and more self centered. It's amazing, right, how we even call them selfies, and you've got Instagram filters to make us, you know, look, look skinnier and look, you know, brighter and clear our skin up. And, you know, you want a tan, you can have a tan, you can have elf ears, well, you, whatever you want. You know, there's filters that will help, help, help. Everything on social media drives us towards self-centeredness and even probably narcissism in our culture. 
we're increasingly becoming more and more self-centered. And everything in our culture teaches us to think about me, 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 myself, and I, 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 I. So I have to intentionally break away from culture, turn away from culture, and shift the focus if I want to be happy. The second habit, or the second thing I've got to learn to have more joyfulness in my life, is I have to learn to become someone that people trust. Will you feel that in there? Fill in the word trust. Learn to be some, become someone that people trust. How do you do that? Because it's obvious that if we become someone that people trust, more people trust us, the happier we're going to be. And the opposite is also true. If people don't trust us, it's going to be difficult to have any joy in our life. If nobody trusts us, nobody in life trusts us, we're going to live a very miserable life, miserable existence. So this is another quality that we can learn. You can become more trustworthy this year, this month even. Probably you can improve your trustworthiness just this week. And if we learn to be trustworthy, if we learn to be reliable, if we learn to be consistent, if we learn to be dependable, if we, learn, if we develop this quality, we're going to be a whole lot happier than people who are unreliable and not dependable, uh, people who are inconsistent in life. If I want to become someone that people trust, Paul gives us some examples. One of the examples he gives us is this life of Timothy. He says in verse 22, he says, you know, Timothy has proven himself. He says, Timothy has proved himself like a son with his father. He has served with me in preaching the good news. So he's given us this example of Timothy. He says, look, I have watched him in action. I have seen him every, in every circumstance. This guy, Timothy, he is the real deal. This guy, he's genuine. He's authentic. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's reliable. You can count on him. So the question for you and I is, are we trustworthy? And if not, that could be a, a reason why we don't experience very much happiness or very much joy. We're not joyful because the more people that trust us, the happy, the happier we're going to be. And he says about Timothy, he's proven. He's been tested. He's been tried. He's been verified. He's checked out. He's credible. So the question I want to ask you, the hard question for you to ask yourself, it's easy for me to ask you this. In fact, kind of fun to ask you this. I'm looking forward to asking you this. Um, but then you have to then ask this to yourself, and that's the hard question. The difficult question for you to ask, but easy for me to ask you, is are you who you say you are? Are you a big fake? Are you the real deal? Or are you some phony baloney? Do you wear a mask, one mask here, and then wear another mask here? Do we really know the real you? We're afraid to let people know the real us. Because we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid that they won't accept us the way we are. So we, we have a tendency, a temptation to wear masks and to pretend, to role play. That's what they used to do in Greek theater. So when they would go to a theater back in um, the time of Plato, they would have these actors that would play multiple roles. 
So you didn't just have one person play the uncle, another person play the aunt, another person play the policeman, another person play, uh, you know, uh, someone else. You had you had two actors or three actors, and they played multiple roles. And you'd walk out, and you have a the actor would have a the uncle mask on, and he would be the uncle. Then he would step over here and come back and put a different mask on, and he would be the aunt. And you, that, to us, that would be weird. And then he'd come back, and he'd have the a hat and a police and, uh, and a mask, and he's a policeman. And then he, he'd step back and he'd come back and he was in a different role. And you would know the, how the story was going based on what mask that he wore. And the Greek word for this guy in Greek is called hypocrisies, which is the word we get the word hypocrite from. In fact, it's almost spelled the same. A hypocrite in our culture, our language, is someone who he acts one way on the golf course, and another way with his wife and kids. One way at work, but another way. He has one mask at work and another mask at church. And you really don't know who he really is because with one group of people he acts this way, another group of people he acts another way, another group of people he acts this way, with his family another way. So we would call that person a hypocrite. And we can never know at that point... Is what I see what I really get? Is this the real person or not? And he's saying, you know, with Timothy, Timothy is the same at work, at play, with friends, with family. He's the real deal. He's authentic. And when you're authentic in the real deal, then, of course, you learn dependability, you learn trustworthiness, you learn to be reliable. You have a reputation for that. Your happiness goes up. The question is, how do we do that? How do we develop a reputation for reliability? There's two things the Bible tells us, if you'll write these down. The first one is, I've got to learn to live with integrity. Will you fill that in there? Integrity. That means my actions match my words. What I say I believe in, I live out my beliefs. What I say I do, I live out and accomplish what I say I'm going to do. That I don't talk one, I don't talk a good game over here and then live a different life over there. He says, with Timothy, what you see is what you get. He's the real deal. So I've got to make sure that my actions match my words. The message puts it this way in Proverbs 25, 13. Reliable friends who do what they say are like cool drinks and sweltering heat. Refreshing. Now, in Florida in the summer, that verse has extra meaning, doesn't it? Reliable friends who do what they say are like a cool drink on a hot, muggy summer day. Refreshing. Isn't that a great verse? So the question is, can people count on you to do what you say? Can people count on you, or do you flip-flop? Do you, are you two-faced? Are you wishy-washy? Look at the opposite. Proverbs 25, 19 says, Putting confidence in an unreliable person in times of trouble is like chewing with a broken tooth or walking on a lame foot. Ouch! I like that. What he's saying is, the greatest ability is dependability. It's more important than any other ability in life is that we are dependable. Are you dependable? Are you worthy 
of trust. If you are, you're going to have a lot of happiness in life. You're going to be joyful. You're going to have a lot of joy in life. Because the more people who trust you, the more happy you're going to be. Greatest ability is dependability. Second thing, if you want to become a person that people trust, the second thing you've got to do is I've got to learn to keep my promises. Keep my promises. This is the other way you learn the second quality. You keep your word. When you say something, your word is your bond. Parents, you want to get your children to trust you? Be trustworthy. You want to get your children to trust you? How do you be trustworthy? Tell the truth. Don't lie to your kids. Tell the truth to your kids. And keep your promises. Now, it's easy to keep your promises when it's easy to keep your promises. And it's, but it's hard to keep your promises when it's hard to keep your promises, right? So I'm not talking about just keeping the easy promises. Like, oh, I made that pro- promise, and it's an easy promise. It doesn't even cost me anything. It doesn't cost me any time, any energy, any money. I'm talking about when we earn trust is when we keep our promises, when we keep our word, when it costs us our time, our energy, our money, or something else. When it's difficult to keep your word, and you keep it anyway. When it's, when it's hard to keep a promise, and you keep it anyway. You know what your kids learn? They learn to trust dad. They learn to trust mom. They also learn to be trustworthy. The way we teach kids to tell the truth is start telling the truth all the time. Not 90% of the time, not 95%. Always, always, always tell the truth, and your kids will trust you. Why? Because you're trustworthy. And they will learn trustworthiness from mom and dad who tell the truth. So if I want to have joy in my life, if I want to increase the joyfulness, then I've got to learn to shift the focus away from myself. It's not about me. And then second, I've got to, I've got to become somebody that people trust, especially the people that live with me. That they trust. And we see these things from Timothy. Now, I want you to think about who is writing this about Timothy. The Apostle Paul. I don't know if you realize it, but the Apostle Paul is a superstar in the Christian faith. He's like the most valuable Christian to ever live. You real, right? I mean, he's in the hall of fame of Christianity. It's apostle. He is the goat. Okay? For those of you who don't follow sports, goat is greatest of all time. G, greatest. O, of, A, all, T, time. I got to spell it out for some of us. Paul is the goat when it comes to Christianity. He is saying of Timothy, when Paul, the greatest of all time, says of Timothy, this guy is rock solid. He's somebody that should be celebrated. He is a, giving him a ringing endorsement. We should honor people like this, is what Paul is saying. All right, there's a third skill. Third skill that you've got to learn in order to be happy in life. This one is a tough one. We have to learn how to work well with others. Will you feel that in there? Now listen, they don't, they don't teach you this anymore, I don't think, in school. I'm 55 years old. 
when I was in kindergarten, when I was in first grade, when I was in second grade, I think around third grade they started to change things. But can any of you guys remember back that far when you used to bring those report cards? And this was before computers, so this was your grades were in ink, right? They were, I don't know, some of you it was in pencil, but it, it, it was in ink, and they would write down, and they graded you on this, this, this level. They graded you in the area of plays well with others. Do you remember that? Yeah, they don't do that anymore, right? You know, the, the kindergartners, do you get a grade? A, B, C, D. Some of you flunk F and, and plays well with others. That means they got to learn how to share. That means they got to learn how to, to let others go first. That means they got to learn how to, to you know, to, to put others on, a, on an equal basis. It's not all about you, little Johnny or little Jerry in my case, Right? Now, somewhere around the third grade for me is when they stop giving people. There's just too many kids flunking this. So we're going to have to go like pass, fail. So in third grade, I remember you, you could only get an S or a U. Do you remember what those were? Satisfactory. Plays well with others. Satisfactory. Well, that's a ringing endorsement. Or unsatisfactory. We've got to work on this. And apparently parents all went crazy over that too. And in about fourth or fifth grade, and when I was growing up in Florida schools, when they said, let's just, not, let's just not grade that part anymore. These kids aren't going to work well with others. They're not going to play well with others. You know, the times are changing, and, you know, because of whatever, they, they stopped this. Listen, parents, if we don't teach our kids how to work well with others, they're probably not going to learn it. In fact, the reality is you could take all four of these points in this message and use them as a parenting lesson, a seminar on parenting. That we as parents or grandparents, we have to teach our kids and our, and our grandkids how to switch the focus away from themselves and how to teach them to be trustworthy. And then they've got to learn how to work well with others. Now, good colleges do teach this. It's called the dreaded group project. Do any of you love the group project? No. You know what the group project is all about, right? It's you divide the class into groups of four or five, and they spread out all the slackers into everybody's group, right? Now, how many of you ever worked with a slacker in a group project? If you didn't raise your hand, you might be the slacker. If you never had a group project where you, you were like, you, all your group projects, everybody's like so on the ball. They, this is awesome. If you love group, you might be the slacker. And you know what it was like. Every group has a slacker. This guy's not going to do his part. We all know he's not going to do his part. So who's going to take up the slack to do the, because all of our grade rides on loser dude, right? Saying with the love of Jesus, loser dude. Right? So we got to, who are we going to get to do this like, we're going to get overachiever girl. Because she doesn't want just an A. She wants an A plus. She's driving all of us. And you need someone like me that gets along with both sides. And I'm going to try to broker this deal. Right? I'm going to try to say, hey, if you'll do more, you know, it'll help all of our. And she's like, I don't want to do his work. He's like, yeah, but it's all of our grade. I'm telling him, look, could you at least let me, if you, if we bring you a tie, will you wear the tie? You know, and you, you either, and, and we're all praying that he drops, right? Is, hey, drop ads coming up. Are you dropping? Are you dropping? You know? And he's 
thinking, no, man, I'm getting an A in this class. She's going to do all my work, right? That's life, isn't it? And you got to learn to work with all those people, the slackers, the overachievers, the guys who are trying to broker the peace, the peace conference kind of guy. Because life is about working with people, working well with people who aren't like us, who are different than us. Talking about the skill of being a team member, the skill of collaboration, of working together. And if we don't learn to work well with others, life will not be very joyful or very happy for us. Now, what do we need to learn in order to be able to work well with other people? Well, you need to learn at least two things. The first is we've got to learn to cooperate. I need to learn how to cooperate with others. Now, this is not something that we automatically know how to do. In fact, that's why it's one of the goals of parenting. You've got to teach your kids to share toys. If you have multiple kids, they have siblings. Teach them to share with their siblings. You teach them to clean up, and we clean up together. And even though I didn't get that part out, I do more than my part by helping to clean, them up, clean that up. That's teaching our kids to cooperate and work with people who have different personalities. Do all your kids act exactly the same? No. Even if you have identical twins or triplets, they have different personalities. So they've got to learn to work with each other. Now, Paul gives this second guy, Epaphroditus. Remember, we call him Epap. He gives him as an example of this quality. He says in verse 25, Meanwhile, I thought I should send Epaphroditus back to you. He's a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. You can circle those three if you want. Brother, fellow co-worker, and, and soldier. And he was your messenger to help me in my need. So he says, remember, this is, this, is the guy, this is the guy that the church sent to Philippi, along with this gift, monetary gift, this financial support. And Paul says, he's my, he's my brother, he's my fellow worker, he's my soldier. He has worked and he has fought right by my side. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, this guy is a good team member. Now let me tell you a little bit about Paul. Paul was not, first of all, Paul was not the slacker ever. Okay, but he was not easy to work with. Paul had a very choleric personality. It was his way or the highway. Sometimes people felt that. And if you read your New Testament, I have I mentioned you should read your Bible. If you read your New Testament, you'll see there are several conflicts with the personality of the Apostle Paul where very good people, very good gospel people, very good Christians and Christ followers were like, hey, Paul, nice working with you. We're going to go a whole nother way. We love you, Paul. We're going to love you from a distance, Paul. So, so there's a couple of times in the New Testament where Paul has a conflict and, and, and they split off and and go in opposite directions because Paul himself was sometimes difficult to work with. What am I trying to say here? Listen, none of us are all just a cup of, a cold cup of tea for everybody. There will be people that you find it hard to work with. There will be more people who find you hard to work with in life. And Paul is saying that, listen... Epaphroditus, he knows how to work with a team. He's not a lone ranger. He's not a maverick. He's not a prima donna. This guy knows how to work with other people, and Paul probably himself by that time had figured out, mm, and I'm not all that easy to work with myself. Another ringing endorsement, isn't it? The better we learn this skill, the happier we're going to be in life. 
And if we don't learn how to work with different people, diff- people who are different from us, then we're going to be in, in deep trouble, deep weeds. Because let me just tell you something. I just want to be really, really, really honest with you. Let me just tell you this. Most of the world is different than you. In fact, most of America is different than you. Let me bring it to you bluntly. Most of America doesn't vote like you. They don't. Most. Most people don't look like you, don't act like you, don't believe everything you believe. Most people, more than 50% of the people in our nation, certainly way more than the planet, they don't believe what you believe, and they don't follow the Savior you follow. Most people. So if you don't learn to work with people who vote differently than you, think differently than you, believe differently than you, follow someone other than your Savior, then you will be miserable for most of your life because you'll shut out the, the majority of people in our country, people in our area, people on the planet. We have to learn to work with people who are not like us, especially if we're going to claim Christ and be a Christ follower and have any effectiveness in the world. So I've got to, I've got to learn to cooperate. And the second thing I need to do is I've got to learn to be considerate if I'm going to learn to work, work with people. Fill that in. I've got to learn to be considerate. The more considerate we are, by the way, the happier we're going to be. The more considerate we are, the more joy we're going to have. The more joyful we're going to be in life. And the more inconsiderate we are, the less happy, the less joyful, the less joy we will experience. The more inconsiderate we are with people in our life. You know the people who serve us, like the clerks and the fast food people and the waiters and the waitresses. The people, the more inconsiderate we are to those people, the more unhappy we're going to be. When you see somebody going off on a waiter or a waitress in the restaurant, are they being really happy at that moment? No. They're being unhappy and ugly. Those two things, happiness and conflict like that, usually don't go together. And Paul's saying, we've got to all learn to be more thoughtful. We've got to learn to be more empathetic and sympathetic and understanding of others. And he says, Epaphroditus is a great example of this. He says, I'm sending him Epap, I'm sending him because he's been longing to see you and he was very distressed. That's consideration. He's worried, not about his distress, but he's worried that they're distressed that he's distressed. He's very distressed that you heard he was ill. So we see two different considerations. Paul is considerate of his co-worker and his concern. He says, and Epaphroditus, he's very homesick, so I want to send him because I'm out of consideration because he wants you to, he wants to see you. And then Epaphroditus is considerate because he knows they're worried about him. He wants to go and show them that he's okay. In fact, that's how it says it in, in the message paraphrase. They're all worried that their friend had almost died on the way to Rome. And he says, he's been wanting to get back to you and rescue you. This is a message paraphrase of that same verse. He's been wanting to get back and re- reassure you that he's just fine. This is a key to happiness. 
the more considerate you are of other people's needs, of other people's doubts, of other people's fears, the more considerate you are, let's just talk about where this hits, the more considerate you are with your husband and his fears and his issues and his doubts, the more considerate you are of your wife, of her doubts, of her fears, of her needs, the more considerate you are of your kids, of your aging parents, of your siblings, the more considerate we are of all those people, the happier our life's going to be. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. And if you're inconsiderate to your wife or to your husband, you're going to have an unhappy marriage. And if you're inconsiderate to your kids, your parents, your siblings, you're going to have an unhappy family. Thanksgiving's not going to be so much fun at your house. Because we've got to learn these skills. 1 Corinthians 10, 1, 10, and the message says, you must, it doesn't, this doesn't make it sound like an option, you must learn to be considerate of one another cultivating a life in common. And I look at that word, I mean, this is a verse we should all memorize. You must learn to be considerate of one another cultivating a life in common. When I see that word considerate, I mean, when I see the word cultivate, talking about considerate, cultivating is like you got to work at it. Cultivating isn't like you make a quick decision and just flip a switch. Cultivating is like you've got to cultivate, you've got to work at, you've got to put into, you've got to work, 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 a life in common. Cultivating. He's saying you have to be thoughtful of the effect of your words and the effect of your actions. Now, i got to say, that does not come natural to me. I know you all, you look at me and say, oh, Jerry's the nicest guy where he'd be a dream to live with and do everything. He's, he's still a tons of fun, you know. It's like, you know, you should talk to Nancy. Because she could go on and on about, well, he doesn't think about what he says before he says it. He certainly doesn't think about how he says it, the tone that he uses. Now, I said, you, she could tell you for hours and hours, but she won't tell you because she's a lot more considerate. But it doesn't come natural to me, and it probably doesn't come natural to you either. Because I naturally don't think about how my words are going to affect other people or how my tone is going to affect other people. That's not natural for me to think about that. I've got to work hard. I've got to learn. I've got to let the Spirit develop this, this character trait within me. And you do too. 1 Corinthians 10.33 says, I don't just do what's best for me. I do what's best for others. So many may be saved. Paul's saying, I don't put my comfort before other people. I put other people's comfort before myself. That's another verse that we should try to live by. All right, there's also a fourth quality. If I want to be happy, I've got to learn these three things. I've got to teach my kids these three things, my grandkids these three things. I've got to, I've got to learn how to, best way to, by the way, the best way to teach them to your kids is learn them yourselves, right? I've got to learn how to shift the focus away from me to others. I've got to learn to become that person that people trust. I do what I say. I keep my commandment. I keep my promises. Um, and then number three, I've got to learn to work well with others by learning to cooperate, learning to be considerate. That'll increase my happiness. Here's the last one. It's a big one. 
if I want to have genuine happiness in my life and genuine joy in my life, if I want the, the joyfulness to increase in my life, number four, I've got I've to learn to live for something worth dying for. Feeling worth dying. Live for something worth dying for. And until, until you do this, you'll never have ultimate happiness and ultimate joy. I learned to live for something. See, here's the thing. Most people, the vast majority of people, give first class allegiance to second and third class causes. What they give their life for isn't worth their life. Most people are giving first-class allegiance to second-class causes. In those second- and third-class causes, they betray them. They give all this time, all this effort, all this energy, all this money, and they get there and they realize, I wasted my life. I have nothing but regrets. I talked with a guy one time who said, Jerry, I climbed the ladder of success. I reached the pinnacle of success in my career, in my life, only to realize the ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. I didn't even want to get here. I gave up everything to get this and realized this isn't even what I really wanted. So many times, big-time commitment to small-time causes that aren't going to last. So the question that I need to ask myself, that you need to ask yourself, is all the time, all the money, all the effort that you're putting into something, whatever it is you think about the most, whatever it is you're giving all, you're giving your all for that, how much is that going to matter five years from now? Well, if we could teach our kids to invest their life in something that's going to matter longer than five years, what a gift we would give them. How much is it going to matter ten years from now? What if you put a hundred or a thousand years to that? How much is what you're doing right now going to matter a hundred years from that? Changes the calculus, changes the equation completely. You see, the best use of your life is to use it on something that's going to outlast it. What is that going to be? You need to live for something worth dying for. And you've got to figure out what's worth putting first place in my life. Because we're really not ready to live until we're ready to die for those things. Because when you give your life for something, when you give your time, your energy, your resources, you're giving your life for something, that's what you're dying for. And if you never figure that out, you're just kind of coasting through life. You're just kind of drifting through life. You're not really living, you're just existing. We're not really, to, really ready to live until we really figure out what are we ready, willing to die for. And Paul ends with these words about Epaphroditus. He said, he certainly was ill. In fact, he almost died, verse 27. He risked his life. That's something worth dying for. He risked his life for the work of Christ. And he was at the point of death while doing for me what you couldn't do from far away. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a backstory here. Paul... You know, he's, at, he's in prison in Rome. The church in Greece, in Philippi, the Philippian church, is 800, at least 800 miles away. 800 to 1,000 miles away. The church takes up a, an offering one Sunday morning. They say, hey, we want to help our 
founding pastor, Pastor Paul. We want to help him. We're going to take up an offering, and um, and we're going to send him a care package. Who wants to go take this to the Apostle Paul? Now, remember, there's no planes, trains, and automobiles back then. It's 800, 2,000 miles away, and there's only one way that you can really get to Rome, and it's going to take a lot of walking. You can walk all the way north and then back down south. That's usually what people did. Or you can walk to the to the coast and and then take across the GNC. You can take a, a short cruise. Still takes a long. Or you got to wait for summertime if you're going to sail. You walk and then sail all the way around uh, the boot to the boot of Italy to Rome. Um, your options are very, very limited. There's really only one way for this guy to get there. And the best, easiest, if you want to call it easy, is an 800-mile walk to deliver this offering that the Philippians have decided to give to Paul. And that's what he does. He raises his hand and says, I'll go. Send me. I'll travel. I'll walk 800 miles through thick and thin, through robbers and thieves, around, you know, skirmishes or wars or battling tribes or whatever there is. And Epaphrodite's favorite band had to be the Proclaimers. I would walk 800 miles and I would walk 800 more to bring the offering from the church. Can't y'all sing along? You're going to remember that, right? I walk 800 miles to take a gift from our church to our former pastor who's in prison in Rome, 800 plus miles away. And he risks his life. And it doesn't tell us what disease that he got, but he gets so sick he, he almost dies. And that's why everybody's worried about him. But in spite of persistent sickness and persistent pain, probably, he completes his mission. He finishes it. Now, let me ask you two important questions, two personal questions. 2,000 years later, here's my question. What have you committed to in life? What have you committed and started but you haven't finished yet? What if Epaphrodite, when he gets sick, he just says, Man, I'm just not going to be able to make it. We've got to go back to Philippi. We've got to go back to the church. He wouldn't have completed his mission. What commitment have you made like that? And eh, you've gotten sick or times are tough or it's gotten hard. And, and um, you made the commitment and maybe you need to keep the commitment, but you haven't kept it. Maybe it's a commitment to your spouse. Maybe it's a commitment that you made to your husband or you made to your wife. You said, you know, I'm going to do this, and you haven't done it. Or I'm going to work on it, and you haven't worked on it. Or you've given up working on it. Maybe it's a, it's a promise or a commitment that you've made to one of your children. You said you would, but you haven't. Or maybe to a friend or to a family member. And you kind of promised, and you made this commitment, you started out, and you started strong, but life got in the way or... You know, excuse, excuse, excuse. Maybe it's a commitment you made to God to follow him, to step out of faith, to do something he called you to do. And when, when the heat got on or when, when times got tough or when the, when the path got too steep, you're like, eh, someone else is going to have to do this. 
Let me ask you a second question. It's also personal. Is there a commitment? Is your commitment to Christ deep enough to cause you to take a risk in life? This is why Timothy and Epaphroditus are so rare. This is why there are people who are celebrated. We're still talking about them 2,000 years later. There aren't very many people like this. If our church were to take an offering today and say, you know what, we've got someone we want to help. Anybody here willing to walk 800 miles? Who's going to stand up and say, you know what, I'll walk past Nashville. That's how far 800 miles. I'll walk past, I'll walk all the way to Houston and keep on going. Houston, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, 800 miles is is a long, long, most of us, I don't know if we would drive 800 miles. But none of us are going to walk 800 miles. There aren't very many people like this. They are so rare. This is why the Bible says we're to honor Timothy and you honor men like Epaphroditus. Most people are willing to live for Christ. As long as it's convenient. Most of us, we're willing to live for Jesus, but, you know, hey, there's a game on today. You know, I'm willing to sacrifice for Jesus, but, you know, just out of my plenty. So you might as well take the word sacrifice off. Most people, as long as it's convenient and comfortable, I mean, as long as we can serve Jesus in the air conditioning, and as long as we can serve him with a full stomach, and as long as we can serve him, you know, as long as it fits into our busy, busy schedule, then sure, I can help. But if we've got to live for Christ, like at work when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable, or in the neighborhood when it's inconvenient or uncomfortable, or in our family when it's hard, and keeping your word is is difficult, well, no. And we're not much of a Christ follower, are we, at that point? And this is why God says we've got to honor people like this, people who take risks, for the kingdom of God, take risks to share the gospel, take risks just to follow their Savior. Because we don't really know what it's like to live until we really understand what's worth living for and what's worth dying for. So let me summarize. Happiest people on earth are caring and consistent and cooperative and considerate and contagious. They have the most joy. We can all learn those traits. They're caring. They get the focus off of themselves and onto other people and onto God. They're consistent. They learn to be trustworthy. How do they do that? By telling the truth and keeping their promises. Not rocket science. They're, con- they're cooperative and considerate. They know how to play well with others and work well with others. They know how to be on a team. And then they're courageous. They're willing to say, yes, Lord, send me. Yes, Lord, I'll follow you. Yes, I'll take a risk, a step in faith. We can all have more joy, more happiness in our life if we learn to be more joyful by learning these four qualities, and then, of course, by teaching these qualities to the next generation, especially our own children. This is what we want them to have. 
the best way for them to have that is for mom and dad, grandmom and granddad to be that so that they can see it. Because that's how your kids learn to tell the truth is dad always told the truth. That's how your kids learn how to keep their promises. Dad always kept his promises. They not only learn to trust you, they learn to become you as you become like Christ. Let's bow our heads. And as we're praying, if, if you want more happiness, if you want more joy in your life, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. To just, in your own mind, in your own words, just say, Dear God, I want to be like these guys. I want to learn to be happy. Is that your prayer? You want to learn to be happy? Tell God. God, I want to learn to be happy. I realize that happiness is not a matter of luck. It's a matter of learning. That I can choose to be happy. And I can make decisions to be joyful. And I can develop character that will bring more joy into my life. I can develop character that will make me joyful and happy. So God, please do that. Help me. Help me to get the focus off myself. Lord, I'm really sick and tired of looking at me. Help me to become somebody that people can trust. Help me to be reliable and dependable and trustworthy. Help me to do what I say that I'm going to do and help me to keep my promises, especially to my kids, especially to my spouse, especially to my family. Lord, I don't know if you realize it, God, but I need to learn how to get along better with others. I think we can all pray that, can't we? God, help me to get along better with other people. I need to learn to cooperate. And I need to learn how to be considerate. And I need to learn how to be a team member. How to work with people who are different than me, because most people are different than me. And I want to be like Paul, who said, I don't just do what's best for me, but I want to do what's best for everybody. And finally, Lord, help me to learn to live for something worth dying for. I pray that prayer that's so dangerous. Use me, Lord. Send me, Lord. I volunteer, Lord. And I don't know what that means, but I'm open and I trust that you'll show me what it means to follow you and to live your plan for my life. And I know it will stretch my faith. Lord, go ahead, stretch it. Use me the way you plan, not the way other people plan, not the way I plan. Use me the way I want your plan for my life. Now, if you're hearing you've never invited Jesus into your, into your life, then why don't you just pray and do that. As we kick off VBS, it's a great week for you to start, just like these kids are going to hear and place their faith in him. You just say, Jesus, please come into my life and save me. I admit, A, I admit that I need a Savior and I need my sins forgiven. Please forgive my sins and change me. Father, I, I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. So make me the person that you want me to be. I choose, see, I choose, I confess that I need him as my Savior. And Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for everyone who's praying these prayers All the prayers that are being prayed today. We know that being like you is what leads us to happiness. Having 
The fruit of the Spirit is what leads us to joy in our life. Help us to become more and more like Jesus, Lord. And I just want to pray a blessing on every person here. Now, whatever you've called us to do as a church and whatever you've called us to do as families, whatever you've called us to do as individuals, that you will help us do that, that you will help us to do what you've called us to do. Enable us and give us the will to do your your plan for our life. And whatever commitment we have, have to make that we will keep. And I pray this blessing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's now. Living with integrity is so important, but it certainly isn't easy. The world we live in will definitely test your resolve to keep your promises and be someone others can trust. But remember, you don't have to do it alone. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. See ya.